Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So our verses for the Sunday continue in the birth narratives of the Gospel of Matthew. Picking up where we left off at the beginning of chapter 2, right after the wise men came with their singular mission, asking the question, where is he who was born king of the Jews, that we may worship him? And we read these words, starting in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. So it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. This is what we do each and every week. We pray that you would shine your light by your spirit on your word. To grant us not only understanding, but transformation, that our hearts would be moved, that we would apply your word with joy and love. We thank you for this. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. The year was 1865 the end of the American Civil War. And the man was Phillips Brooks. Brooks was a minister, and he was a minister who had a reputation as a great orator, a a speaker, a, a wordsmith, if you will. So widespread was his reputation that when President Lincoln was assassinated, He, though he wasn't his pastor, was asked to speak at his funeral. And he dug deep and mustered the words together to give the nation a bit of comfort in the wake of such a loss. But for Brooks, he was feeling an increasing uh, desperation, increasing despair in his own soul. He felt it in himself, he felt it in his congregation, and he feared that it was rampant throughout the nation as a result of the war. Week by week he saw it. Not a week would go by, it would seem, that women weren't coming into his church dressed in black, mourning the loss of a husband or a son. It seemed as if no one was immune to the effects of the war. Everyone seemed to know someone who was either killed or maimed by the war. And then, like salt in the wound, came the assassination of President Lincoln. Brooks needed 
something, a spiritual retreat. He needed something and decided after the war was over that he would take a sabbatical and visit the Holy Land. And so he embarked on his journey halfway around the world, which as you can imagine, it was no easy thing to do in the 1860s, not like it is today. But nonetheless, he went. And on Christmas Eve, he borrowed a horse. He was told, be careful, there might be thieves, but he borrowed a horse, and he took the long ride out to the remote village of Bethlehem. A landscape that was largely, not entirely, but largely unchanged since biblical times. He stood in a church, there's one difference, that was built in the place where they believed Jesus was born. He rode that borrowed horse by the fields where the shepherds received the good news of great joy of the coming of their Savior. There were shepherds there even then, tending their flocks. He prayed, he meditated, it was powerful. In fact, he would later describe that experience as, as a thing that would forever sing in his soul. And yet, this great orator struggled desperately to convey that powerful experience to his congregation. And the words evaded him for years Until one evening, in 1868, three years later, as the Advent season was approaching, and he found himself again reflecting on his experience in Bethlehem, the words began to flow out of him. But you see, for Brooks, as this great orator, he, he wanted the, the words to match the experience. He wanted to write these majestic and lofty words, and that's what evaded him. But on that night, simple words came forward. Not as a sermon or an inspirational speech, but in the form of a poem. Finally, he thought, I, I have conveyed the, 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 the impact and significance of this experience. He couldn't wait to share it. He rushed to share it with his friend, Lewis Redner, who was a, a, a co-laborer in ministry. And his friend felt the same way. Finally, it's been years, and finally I understand the impact of that experience. Redner, who was a musician, felt like this poem needed some music. And he felt, kind of like Brooks, that the music needed to be soaring and profound and inspirational. And lo and behold, like Brooks, he struggled desperately to figure out a melody. Nothing would come to him. In fact, it wasn't until he had all but given up in what they sometimes call twilight, somewhere between sleep and awake, and a kind of a melody just kind of came to him. He wiped the sleep from his eyes, he got up and he wrote it down, and thus was created, O little town of Bethlehem. Now, I tell you that little story for two reasons. One, because that is our theme song this week. But two, and more importantly, because is it not profoundly true that sometimes it's the simple message that strikes and resonates? That was true for Brooks and for Redner in the creation of this beautiful, little, beloved Christmas song. 
It's true in our words this morning, too. As we read these words, the simple and profound message is that God so loved the world that he provided for them when those who were in charge failed to do so. You see, our verses kind of depict a bit of a a juxtaposition between King Herod and King Jesus. And this picture kind of beautifully depicts that. This isn't Herod on the one side and Jesus on the other. Both of these pictures, both of these crowns belong to Jesus. They together depict what a true, benevolent, gracious, self-sacrificing king does. He rightfully has the office of king and rightfully bears the punishment of his people for his people. Herod would never do that. This is one of the things we mentioned in our call to worship. Herod is selfish, self-absorbed, and at the threat of his kingdom, he does everything he can to protect it. What we read in our call to worship was something that showed us that there's a parallel here Matthew is making between juxtaposing Herod and Jesus, but also one that's slightly and subtly reflected in the Old Testament reference between Saul and David. So let's take a look at our verses, and we'll see how that kind of comes about, how that unfolds. Here's what we read. We read when Herod, the king, and remember, we were introduced to Herod last week as king, so we began to set that foil up between Herod and Jesus. When he learned, when he had heard this, and what is this? This is the singular cry of the wise men, the gospel irony we talked about last week, which is that the ones who aren't supposed to know, know, but also in the wise men is the gospel embrace of the Gentiles. They weren't Jews, they were Gentiles, and they came to worship. Herod heard this, where is the one born king of the Jews? And he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And why was he troubled? Well, before we get to why he was troubled, let's answer the question, what was Herod's role? See, Herod was also titled king of the Jews. It's not just king, but it's king of the Jews. He was in charge of the region of Judea in the Roman Empire. He was given that task by Mark Anthony, who who was the second in command. So Herod had charge over Judea, but he wasn't a king who had no no one to, to answer to. He served at the behest of Rome. He was more like a tetriarch or a governor He didn't have autonomous authority. In fact, he had certain responsibilities because at this time in Rome's history, it soon would change, but at this time in Rome's history, they practiced something that wasn't all that different from the Persian Median Empire that existed before them, which was to let the different states that they conquer have a certain level of autonomy so they could practice their religion and their beliefs. The idea was that if we gave them certain autonomy, less rebellion would quell up. Now, later on, partly because of Mark Anthony, Rome became a, a, a more powerful empire that just absorbed every state in. Uh, but at this time, they weren't doing that. And so Herod, 
had a certain responsibility to have an interest and concern for the Jews. Now, Herod was also half Jewish. He thought that would work in his favor. It didn't. So Herod made a plan. He said, I'm going to divorce my wife and abandon my child and marry someone else who had influence with the Jews to gain me some political favor. That, too, failed miserably. So this is kind of the dynamic at hand. And by the way, at this time, when, when Herod takes the reins, when he comes into power, about 40 B.C., maybe it's 37 B.C., I forget, it's not in my notes, but um, there was already a king in place for Judea, a king who was fully Jewish and who the people felt was concerned for their interests. Now, he was kind of a powerless king. He was kind of a puppet king to Rome, but at least he had a voice for the concerns of the Jewish people. What did Herod do when he came to power? He sent that man to Rome to be executed. So Herod was a brilliant man, a cunning man, but a ruthless man. He had certain responsibilities and charges that he failed miserably to do. So now when we consider these, these words here, Herod heard this and he was troubled. We get the troubled, but we also get why all of Jerusalem was troubled. Because they knew that Herod would respond not just with his cunning, but with his ruthlessness to a threat to his kingdom. I'm the king of the Jews. This is my kingdom, and no one will take it. And the Jews feared the degree of ruthlessness in his retaliation. They, too, were troubled by that. What does Herod do? He does two things that our text tells us about this morning. The first thing is to assemble all of the chief priests, as we see here, and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This is the first thing he does. He gathers the Jewish leaders and asks this question, where is the Christ to be born? I want to know the location. Now, notice something here. They tell him in Bethlehem, but they also provide some Old Testament prophetic support. Remember what we said about Matthew's goal here, the threefold forms of evidence to support his claim that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, genealogical, testimonial, Old Testament prophetic fulfillment. Here's the second one. So they don't just say he's to be born in Bethlehem. They cite the prophet. And they cite the prophet Micah from chapter 5, verse 2. Where is he to be born? In Bethlehem. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Now, that's basically what Micah 5.2 says. But there's this other line in here. Who will shepherd my people Israel? That is a reference to our Old Testament, or, or, or excuse me, our call to worship. It's from the Old Testament. Let me read that to you again to remind you. Here's what uh, 2 Samuel 5, 2 says. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Let me just ask you a question. What does that remind you of? Genesis. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Do you see the, the profound nature of the way the people of Israel saw David? 
They were bound to him, united to him. And by the way, who is David? He is a type of Christ. And who are his people? His bride. And so here's what they say. They say this to him. Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So we have the ruler over Israel here too, but also the shepherding dynamic at play here. And this beautiful picture of David as a type of Christ who is bound to his bride, to his people. But you also notice something else in those verses too, I hope. Remember I said Matthew is juxtaposing King Herod and King David and the prophets make this, ref- make this prophetic reference largely to Micah too, but they sneak this line in there too, which says what? Kind of something similar. That is this. Well, you remember David, when Saul was our king, Saul was the one who was responsible to, to be uh, the one who is benevolent over us and in charge of us and concerned for us and to provide for us and to protect us and to love us as king. And when he failed to do that, you, who were not yet recognized as king, did do that. You see the juxtaposition here, right? King Saul, who was actually king, failed, where King David, who was not yet recognized as king, was successful. And, and selfless and self-sacrificing in his love to lead and to shepherd his people Israel. And so too, where Herod, King Herod fails, King Jesus ultimately succeeds. God so loved his world that even when those he, he puts in charge fail, and they always do, he provides See what we see in the next verses. First thing Herod does, gathers the chief priests and scribes, gathers the Jewish leaders, asks the question, where? The next thing he does is has a secret meeting with the wise men to figure out when. I want to know where, and I want to know when. He summons the wise men secretly. There's his cunning and plotting ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. He's trying to build a timeline. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And of course, what we read later on is one of the most horrific uh, bits of history in history, the, the massacre of the innocents it's sometimes called. Herod already had in mind that he, would, he was going to slaughter the king. And when he did not get what he wanted, he killed every child, two and under. But he plots and he schemes. And he does so not for his own, not for his people, but for his own good. When and where gives me what I need to protect my kingdom rather than to serve my God and to care for my people. And so the dynamic is at play and played before us, and and we just want to see that God is merciful, gracious, and loving to his people, and he gives and gives even when we, uh, those who are in charge, fail, and we always do. They fail to do so. 
In essence, as I said, these verses set this juxtaposition up. We see King Herod as a selfish king, cunning and plotting to preserve his kingdom, his power. While God, as king, providentially blesses us with his son, King Jesus, to provide for us, his people, that which they both desperately needed and were simultaneously incapable of providing salvation for themselves, forgiveness for their sins. And this picture depicts that, as I said before, the benevolent King Jesus in taking upon himself death on our behalf, something that Herod would certainly never consider. But David, as a type of Christ, does. He gives of himself for his people and points us to Christ. It's not hard to look at at those charged with our care even today, but not only today, but throughout history, and see them as having failed in favor of their own agenda. It's not hard to look in history and see that. But as we come to the table, maybe we'll be reminded of the selfless and self-sacrificing love of God and Christ lavished on us and demonstrated at the table and in this meal. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you that you are always on your throne. We thank you that, that when we look around at our world, when we look at temporal things, and they give us cause to worry to be greatly concerned, to wonder what's happening, that we can take comfort in knowing that you are sovereignly in charge and nothing has changed in that. When we see leaders fail to honor their role, fail to care for their people well, we know that you do that as king. And as we come to this table, Lord, we recognize that this is a a picture of the ultimate selfless act of love as you, our benevolent king, exercise on our behalf because we simply could not. Thank you for this. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.